Eternal Dirtles is a Hipsters of the Coast podcast sponsored by Paragon City Games and Cast Haven. You can find out more at patreon.com slash eternal dirtles. To Eternal Dirtles. I'm your host, Zach Clark, and with me as always is Nathan Golia. Nate, how's it going, man? Pretty good, Zach. I'm really excited that we have an awesome guest tonight. Yeah. Um, we've got Eric Virgo, who uh, just top aided both Legacy and Vintage Champs in Pittsburgh this past week. Um, and uh, we're going to talk to him about his tournament experience. Hey, Eric, how Eric. you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Um, uh, thanks for having me on. Pretty excited to be here. Uh, we're glad to have you, man, and congratulations on your weekend. That's a, that's a hell of a, a weekend of back to like back to back top eights, and anything is is ridiculous. But this is like the cream of the crop. Yeah, I I had the opportunity to put it together a really good weekend, and um, a lot of things went my way. So a little bit of luck, a little bit of skill. Eric, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, your history with Eternal Magic? Um, I did a little bit of research on you. Hope it doesn't sound too creepy. Most of it's publicly available. But I saw you've been playing in some legacy GPs going back a few years. I don't know um, how much other legacy you've played. Uh, but maybe just tell us a little bit about how long you've been playing um, legacy and vintage. So I have been playing legacy since about the time Delver of Secrets was printed. Uh, so back in the original Innistrad block was when I started. Um, and I had played around with a couple different decks. My, my introduction to the format was Goblins back when that was playable. And um, yeah. <clears throat> I was playing goblins a lot and beating a lot of fair decks, but always losing to combo. And I just I couldn't take it anymore. Um, so uh, I built Delver, and I've basically been playing Delver or a Delver variant ever since. Um, the exceptions for that are when Treasure Cruise was legal and when Dig Through Time was legal. And when when just Dig Through Time was legal in Legacy, I was playing Omni Show um, because that was the best deck by quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then vintage, uh, yeah, vintage was um, sort of similar. I did not own power for a very long time because I was a little bit younger and it was too expensive. But I'd always played in proxy events, um, and I had always been a storm player. I really, really loved just doing the most completely broken thing possible, and for a long time that was storm. Yeah. Um, and then they restricted gush, so I couldn't play gush bond anymore. And I sort of tooled around with some other decks in the format and didn't find anything that I really liked, but I more recently found shops and, you know, it turned out very well for me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought it was interesting in what you're talking about is you talked about starting out playing goblins and even I think in the right before Innistrad came out, that was a very strong legacy deck. And then you talked about playing Omnitel as uh because it was the best deck and you played workshops in vintage at this, at the champs. Uh, but you also played rug at champs, which is like I could, I can't really I don't know if I, if, you, if I describe you as a person who like tends to play the best deck or tends to play your favorite deck. Like how, where do you sort of feel like you fall on that spectrum? So uh, I definitely don't put myself in the position of always playing the best deck, but I, I know for me specifically and for a lot of other people um, in legacy, uh, having familiarity to, with your deck is is really really huge. And I have been playing Delver for so long i 
before I came on, I, I roughed out the math and I think I've played over a thousand matches with Rug Delver um, wow. or, or something close to it. So I feel really, really comfortable playing with it. And it's the best deck for me um, just because I know what my role is in, the, in every matchup that I play. And there's not a ton of surprises. So it's for me, it's the best deck um, because I was a little bit newer to sanctioned vintage um i didn't have that sort of um depth in any particular deck mm-hmm. and i just chose what i thought was the best back in the deck in the format and i played it i played nothing but shops for the last say four months since about gp vegas okay uh great yeah um let's start by talking a little bit about rug delver then and uh you know you said you were pretty familiar with it this de- this build is you know pretty stock and i know zach's gonna have a couple quick questions oh, yeah. um but how did you feel what were you, what were you sort of expecting you know this build to be good against coming in what what, what led you to play uh, a couple of uh, hooting mandrills and shooting nemesis over tarmogoyf oh yeah well the answer to that question is um is pretty straightforward it's meant to beat fatal push decks um you know there's the check pile decks are playing fatal push and you'll, you'll even see fatal push in some of the grixis daughter lists and when you're playing a Delver deck, having your two-mana spell get killed by a one-mana spell is very bad for you for, for two reasons. Um, one, the, the first is that you're losing sort of your top-end spell, so your Tarmogoyf is the biggest threat in your deck, and now it's dying, so you're probably losing your board presence. But the other really big thing is that you're trading two-mana for one, and Delver is trying to be as efficient as possible in the way that you spend your mana versus how your opponent spends your mana. So when they get to make a one-for-one trade and go up on a mana, that's that's really bad for you. Right. Zach, did you want to... No, I can't agree more. Uh, there, there was a while back, uh, when I would say GP New York, uh, a little less than a year ago, um, I was on a completely Delverless uh, and Tarmogoyfless Delver deck, and uh, I had the same inclination to just make it so that none of my targets could be uh, pushed or abrupt decayed. Uh, abrupt decay sort of fell off the market for uh, for most of the decks, and now they're you know for the most part just playing push. Um, I I like your creature base, uh, and the the funny thing was is I was wondering. Obviously, it did well for you, but um, I, you know putting the Delvers back back into the deck um, and only playing eleven guys, which is uh, uh, which I thought I found pretty uh, uh, interesting. Yeah, I was a little bit worried about playing 11 threats as well. Um, the Eternal Weekend was actually the first time that I had played Legacy in about three months, just because I was testing so much for Vintage. Mm-hmm. And um, one of my really good friends, uh, uh, Kevin, who's a really well-known Nick Fit player, uh, uh, sent me a list and said, hey, just want to let you know, like I know you did well in... Vintage yesterday, but you can you can play Nimble Mongoose again. So I said, "All right, I'll I'll play Legacy tomorrow." And Eric, could you tell us about sort of managing the uh, the tension between uh, Hooting Mandrills and Nimble Mongoose? What's how how did you sort of make sure that those didn't clash with each other too badly during the uh, during the tournament? Sure. So when the first thing that I picked up on was oh man there's a pretty serious tension between these cards because you're only playing two hooting mandrels i found that the the interaction didn't really come up all that often um you know when you get to play for brainstorm and for ponder you get to avoid those sorts of things and i understand that playing cards in your deck is not an excuse for playing bad cards but 
um, seeing so much of your library and be able to manipulate your draws really allowed you to have only a single threat um, at, at any given time and really play Protect the Queen very well. So just managing sort of the classic Delver plan of having one creature and, and killing your opponent with it worked out very well. Yeah, that's been my experience with the, exactly. with the deck as well, is just picking a threat, writing it out, um, and then and then just uh, when that threat dies, you just play play the next threat. And so they generally don't tend to uh, uh, mix up with each other too much. The mandrels and the and the mongoose. Yeah, what what creature package do you play? Uh, so I I was on uh, the uh, I, for a while I was playing no delvers. Uh, I I've gone back to wow. delvers. Okay. Uh, and and now uh, that and that was because um, during uh, this was almost a year ago now because. Um, there were just so many abrupt decays and fatal pushes that I decided to just transition away from those those targets. And generally, what would happen is is within a three uh, three uh, game match, my opponent would see uh, between five and eight cards that he would keep in his in his main deck, thinking that I had a, a goose or uh, sorry a goose uh, a delver or a tarmogoyf, and they'd never side those cards out. So it sort of gave me an advantage that way. Um, but, um, the advent of sort of Grixis being, uh, the, the deck that people are choosing to go with, um, as far as a Delver deck is concerned, it's not as solid against a Gurmag Angler. So I sort of, I sort of went back to needing a Delver for, for a, uh, a flying threat. Yeah, I, I think that's reasonable. Gurmag Angler is definitely a little bit of a problem for this build as well. Um, I was fortunate enough to have no one resolve a Gurmag against me and, 10 matches so that's it, amazing that will, that will definitely help your win percentage for sure yeah that that was a big part of it um but the deck only plays a single dismember right now and i wouldn't be surprised if in the future i would try and find room for a second in the 75 yeah i would it's back an okay target for submerge yeah <laughs> yeah i would go back and forth on the number of um, forked fork bolts and uh and dismembers i used and it just depended on what the meta felt like that day um but uh yeah one of the things i noticed in your list was you're playing a, a one of gataxian probe um could you tell us about that sure so i i had a couple people question me on the one of gataxian probe it seems really random um especially because decks that normally want that effect want a lot of it like three or four almost always four mm-hmm. um but the i think the correct way to view it here is because you're playing nimble mongoose and you're playing hooting mandrels um the more cantrips you have in the deck the better and you're already playing the best eight cantrips in ponder and brainstorm and Gataxian probe is just the next best thing and i think the deck wanted a ninth one and you know the math works out where you just play a single Gataxian probe yeah i like that answer right <laughs> Any 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 last questions before vintage? I love the spell snares. I thought that was like really good with against you know a field of mostly check pile decks. It looked like, yeah, it spell snare just totally pulls its weight, and um, I, that's a card I've been super high on for a long time. Um, let's see, like two to three years ago, people were playing three or four Gataxian probes in Delver decks. And even the, I like to have my decks have a little bit more, or my Delver decks anyway, have a, a few more reactive cards in it. There were just too many times where I was playing Delver and I would cast a Taxian Probe in the middle of the game and I would need to draw a, a reactive spell and I would draw a creature or need to draw a creature and I drew a land, that sort of thing. 
And, you know, because the draw is blind, it, um, it hurts your game plan a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Should we move on to Vintage? Yeah, I think we should. How awesome is this workshop stack, Eric? Like, it just seems so brutal. <laughs> so I, um, I don't know if you guys saw, but I had an opportunity to get um, interviewed by Randy Bueller um, on stream on Saturday. And I'll say the, the same thing to you guys that I said to him. You know, I had been playing vintage for a number of years, and it's not like I was playing every month. I would probably play vintage three or four times a year, just at a local event or something like that. Mm -hmm. And every time I played against the shops deck and beat it, I, it didn't feel particularly close because you're playing these really, really swingy cards like Hercules Recall or Rebuild or Energy Flux or, you know, all those sorts of cards, like the really, really heavy hate cards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that's what happens when you win. And when you lose, you get they go like workshop lock piece lock piece lock piece and then like just really really like dumb creature right yeah and that sort of mindset sort of like plagued the way that i thought i think what i said to randy is i had the the opposite of rose colored glasses about shops where i just thought the deck was really bad because the way the games played out um didn't feel like normal magic games you know yeah and it Oh, they drew their one of Trinisphere. Ooh, they drew right, their one of Blood yeah. Stone Golem. You know that sort of stuff. And the truth is, I, I picked up the deck um, after talking to a really good friend of mine, uh, Bobby Green, about it. And it was just immediately obvious that I was very, very wrong. The deck is the deck is really strong. Oh yeah, um, it's so strong. People are talking about uh, restricting workshops, which is uh, a pretty intense topic. You know, I've I've been a proponent of of such such a topic. Uh, but, uh, the one thing I'll say, it's, it's funny that you went from, uh, one fun police deck to, to another fun police deck, uh, in, in that, uh, I think that the deck is, is a defining deck of the format. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's so strong and it does do exactly what, uh, sort of the, the opposite of what people who, you know, uh, try and keep the keep the game alive want is like the other person doesn't get to play magic so that it 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 sort of you know bends it bends the rules on that just enough that I think it's it's okay for like a a little bit longer and then we'll you know we'll see where they go with it yeah I definitely um agree with your point that they're both the fun police deck um even though the I think there's actual zero overlap in any of the cards that oh, they yeah. play both the <laughs> no, you have one, one dismember <laughs> yeah Oh, that's right. Dismember. Yeah, you got me. <laughs> uh, Dismember and Wasteland. You're right. Oh, my God. I was, it's just totally wrong. But I actually think the decks are, are very, very similar. Um, in Legacy, you play a bunch of efficient threats, you know, with like Delver and Nimble Mongoose. Mm -hmm. um, and you play a Mana Denial package uh, with, you know, Stifland or Stifle Wasteland Days. Yep. Um, and then your cards uh, like Spell Pierce is it's like a pseudo mana denial effect because if your opponent chooses to play around it, it's like there's two sphere resistances in play. Yep. Right. Yeah. Um, and then in, uh, in vintage, it's a lot more straightforward where you have these actual sphere effects in play and you break the symmetry of those with really big mana effects. And, um, the game plans are very similar where you disrupt your opponent, um, using your mana denial package. And then you play a bunch of, uh, small aggressive creatures. Yeah. That's well, pretty much the idea. Even... You even have like a pseudo Delver here with Boundary Inspector being a three-two and also being super freaking busted. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Of course. And I think if Wizards wants to restrict a card from the shop deck and it 
is an actual Mishra's workshop. Um, it should be either that or Phyrexian Revoker. Um, yeah. Seems like people are coming around to realizing just how crazy those threats are, like even relative to the other threats in the deck. Mm -hmm. um, Foundry Inspector, I've been, I've like the card's just crazy stupid when you get it on turn one. Like, with yeah. then your workshop can make like up to six mana on the next turn. You don't need a second land. It's it's pretty busted. Um, I think the most feared start for the workshop deck used to be workshop Mox Lodestone Golem, and now I think the actual most feared one is. A workshop foundry inspector mox um sphere effect Ooh, that's yeah that sounds brutal <laughs> i play uh steel city vault and vintage so I, I generally uh just am trying to not have you do what do that stuff hopefully win before you can and and that that all sounds just disgusting to me <laughs> yeah the, the um the sphere effects are when i was testing a lot I, you know i i tested so many different builds and especially after the restriction of thorn Mm -hmm. um, and I found that the sphere effects were so key to winning the game plan, and that I chose to play Tangle Wire. That now, was, yeah, that was be our question because that's a unique card in your deck relative to the other four Ravager Shops decks in the top eight. Yeah, uh, I was actually really surprised to see that I was the only person with Tangle Wire in my deck. Um, and the way that I, I chose to build my seventy-five for Vintage was that I knew at Eternal Weekend there were going to be a lot of people playing blue. It's just that's. Super classic metagame for Eternal Weekend. And mm -hmm. the dumb aggro creature against the blue decks, especially game one, the dumb ag aggro creatures like Chief of the Foundry are much, much worse than a Tangle Wire. So uh, I chose to make my deck really strong against the blue decks game, game one and then sideboard in uh, a bunch of really good cards in the shop's mirror. And those cards were Crucible of Worlds, uh, the two Worm Coil Engine. Um, the Umazawa's Jit and the Dismember. Um, and then, depending if it was the Crucible Mirror, you can also bring in the Relic of Genesis. So I had up to eight cards to bring in in the Shop's Mirror, and I think that was more than most of the other Shop decks. So I definitely had a game plan for, for Eternal Weekend. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how Shop's is just, like, so good against blue. Like, you don't even really need to bring anything in, right? I mean, you know... Yeah, I, Maybe against yeah, I, like a blue creature deck, you bring in the GTA. Against a blue combo deck, you go for Graph Digger's Cage, Oath to get Caracas. But you're 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 boarding for the mirror and for Dredge, right? Like, yeah, it's basically just boarding for the mirror and Dredge. Um, the Jit comes in in any creature matchup. Um, it was also a little bit of a concession to the fact that people were really playing uh, Seeker of the Way online. Um, I never thought it was very good, but people were still playing it, and Jit is uh, good in those 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 matchups. And like the young pyromancer decks and all that sort of stuff, um, but yeah, you, you mentioned bringing in Graph Digger's Cage against the combo decks. I actually, if if people were playing Storm or a deck that really re relies on Dogmoth's Will, um, I would consider bringing in Graph Digger's Cage. But the truth is that your game plan for those matchups is to play Sphere Effects and a quick quick clock and lock them out of the game. Yeah, so that's. If, that's... It's it's brutal already, and, and the extra sideboard cards just mean there's less there's generally less threats for you to, to run into them. Yeah, the the problem with Graph Digger's Cage in that matchup is that your game plan is to let is to stop them from getting to a point where the Graph Digger's Cage would be relevant, and the yeah. second that the Graph Digger's Cage is relevant means there's a good chance you already would have lost. Yeah, because um, they're doing something big. Keep in mind, I have no clue what I'm talking about, so it wasn't that serious. <laughs> oh, that's fair. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's yeah. great against Oath. It's great against Dredge. Um, yeah. 
Um, and yeah, that's how my side, that's how the sideboard is built. I, I wish I could say that it wasn't so linear, but it really was. Um, and finding the the right 75 where I had sort of the perfect swap for a dredge matchup and a shops matchup took me a while. Uh, yeah, and I can see that just based on the way that the numbers work in here, you can really tell how much care you put into, like, this goes out, this goes in for these matchups. So um, yeah. I'm wondering how the tournament felt on the floor um, just because of the top eight being so uh, binary. Did you did you play against a variety of decks coming up, you know, did you or was it, you know, the shops and oath were just shaking out so much towards the top that you just kind of felt it? Yeah, so from uh, med- I can give you an, uh, like a rundown of what my experience was, and I spent a lot of time scouting at the tournament as well. Like every time I finished around, I would go around it and like uh, check out people's names and like remember faces and remember what decks they were playing. Um, so I got a, a pretty good sense of the meta game of, of what was going on. Um, but my experience went pretty much like this. So I had uh, two buys for the tournament, which was huge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. Um, yeah, in a, in a 10-round tournament, two buys is a big, big deal. So I had two buys. Um, and in the uh, eight rounds of Magic that I played, I played um, the Shop's Mirror three times. I played Oath twice, so that's five. And then I played uh, Dredge twice, and I played one blue deck in the 10th round on Jeez. camera. I was wow. the whole day. I was... I had bad matchups and the mirror, but uh, my deck building really rewarded me because uh, my entire sideboard was dedicated to eight out of, the, or excuse me, seven out of the eight matchups that I ended up playing. Yeah, that's that's so, good luck. Um, <laughs> it was, well, it just goes to show how how the field really worked. I mean, yeah, you're you're sure. you're two and zero, so you're in the you're in the X and O bracket for most of the tournament, and you're playing against the decks that made it to top eight. I mean, just it was just not a good tournament for blue. I mean, other than, I mean, as blue as Oath really is, right? I mean, Oath isn't the classic sort of vintage blue deck, you know. Yeah, but. It, I, I would definitely put it in the category of blue, though, because it plays all the broken blue cards and it plays Force of Will. Um, I think those are the, the real indicators that it's a quote-unquote blue deck. But, you know, the room was like 65% blue or something like that when you look at the metagame breakdown, which is a lot. Uh, and yeah. then the rest of it was Shops and Dredge. So people were playing their blue decks and... Just if you go and you look at some of the lists, these decks are just not set up to beat shops. They just, I think people have it in their head that they can just sort of play a couple of Force of Wills and a few Mana Drains and they'll be okay. But when you play like four Mental Mist at main deck and Fluster Storm and yeah. Pyroblast on your main deck, you're just you're just conceding to game one. Yeah. Game oh, yeah. one to shops yeah. like every time. And that's that's really bad. Because that means shops gets to be on the play game three. Yeah, well, we're, that's... we're big on mental misstep needs to be restricted to save the format from itself. Like, you can't. The, the card's just so dead against shops. Like, Flusterstorm's bad enough, but like mental misstep is super dead. Yeah, <laughs> and like, um, making everybody have four just because the mental misstep arms raise just so bad for the format overall. You know, because I, it makes I, the workshop so binary. I couldn't agree more. And. I don't have a fully formed opinion on whether shops should get restricted or not, restricted or not, but I can tell you that Mistep should get restricted. That that card is just it doesn't promote good games of magic on top of being too strong. Yeah. And it's just um it's a card where it doesn't really feel like you're playing magic, you know, where you're not paying mana for your spells. 
and you get to do you get to counter a one drop on the draw, which is just this fundamentally broken thing, right? Like winning the die roll is supposed to put you ahead, and when you get misstepped on turn one, it's just like this isn't what's supposed to happen. It feels so far outside of what the game was intended to be that um, I don't think it should be there. It just makes cards that might otherwise be helpful, you know, your your death rate shaman noble hierarch or you know something like that just. It's just so dead, you know, to the mental misstep war. So yeah, thoughtsies, even something like that. What's crazy is that mental misstep is so good. People put cards in their deck just because they cost two mana. Yep, oh, <laughs> right? yeah. I like, know. People people play <laughs> dis people play disenchant in their sideboard instead of fragmentize because of mental misstep. Oh yeah, I mean so yeah, it's uh, it's I too think, bad for yeah th that card needs to go. And um, when they pulled. Uh, they did player profiles for top eight uh, for both legacy and vintage. I don't know if they ever got posted. I, I hope they do because they were fun. But six out of the eight people in vintage uh, said they needed to restrict misstep. Um, maybe it was a little bit of a biased group. Yeah, it was a I was going to say. Shops <laughs> players. <laughs> well, Rich Shea was he? Just, he said on Twitter same thing. Like I, we all, we all want misstep to be restricted. I don't know if they're going to post it, but yeah. Um, just not a just not a good card. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, mean I, I think misstep needs to go for sure. But um, I would be very open to them uh, restricting a lot of the uh, lock pieces in in shops, but not restricting shops. LSV um, came out with the video today, and I think that's an interesting approach. And I'd like to I'd like to explore that a little bit. Like you restrict you restrict sphere, you restrict tangle wire, you restrict. Um, I guess that would really be it now because yeah. those are the only two lock pieces yeah. that are that are unrestricted. And then you have, you know, basically a pure aggro deck. Um, yeah. And I think that's and, a fair deck at that point, honestly. Uh, yeah, you're just playing know, an aggro game. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's as fair as you can get in vintage. Yeah, of course. While still being competitive, right? Yeah. Like the 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 card shops is still fundamentally broken. Like I, I know for me, I have a couple different categories of cards that I consider broken. Um, and, and one of them is that they, they break the rules of the game. And one of the rules of the game is that you're supposed to get one more land each turn. But when you have shops and ancient tomb in your deck, you have, you can have six mana on turn two, like pretty consistently. Yeah. And it's very, very broken. Right. I, my, my th thing with shops is like, if, if you have a deck that can literally play five black lotuses, uh, and four of them are reusable, um, they need to power down the cards that you're allowed to play with, or they need to get rid of that card. So I think I think the the taking down the lock pieces is a solid is a solid start. I honestly don't know if that will be enough to make people shy away from this deck because I mean that's th that that's the end result of any of any uh, uh, restriction or ban is like they want people to move away from it a little bit and explore other options. Um, it's just tough because vintage is a format where people literally sit down and go i'm gonna play this deck forever so seeing something like workshops get banned or sorry restricted um obviously like that's not ideal you know for anybody uh you know even the people who want it who want it restricted would would much rather just play against a deck that they can handle instead of seeing like you know their friends go why did i spend all this money on these things like it's just such an investment to be told no you made a giant mistake yeah, the monetary aspect of it is something that I actually 
just had a conversation with my girlfriend about it because <laughs> it's it's a lot of money, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, if Rorschach gets restructured, that's probably going to go down to five or six hundred dollars in that range, I would think, and that's a lot of money for people to lose. So yeah. I, I I don't know if people at Wizards consider that when they are discussing banned and restricted lists because, you know, they banned Jace in standard when Jace was a hundred dollars. Yeah. I think they I do think, a little bit, but I don't think that, I think they try not to make that their, their biggest factor. Yeah. I think that the reason they don't, they don't go after workshop is just because it's a defining card in the format. You know, it's an old card. It's like, a, it's a literal, it's literally vintage, you know, yeah. and, and while those 1994 cards are, and uh, I think that you know that's they they want to preserve it. They want to preserve it, and uh, it's going to be hard when they every time they have an artifact set. I mean, what did they restrict before Kaladesh came out? They restricted like in a row, like Lodestone Golem Chalice, and Chalice, Trinisphere. and yeah, yeah. has been restricted for a while, but yeah, yeah Lodestone Golem and Chalice. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they go to Kaladesh and look this deck. <laughs> like I mean. Uh, um, you weren't playing the Chief of the Foundry. That's another card that appears a lot. You know, Walking Ballista and Foundry Inspector. Like they're all crazy. Yeah, <laughs> crazy I, I mean, Foundry Inspector is actually just a busted card. That is, um, I, if I had to guess, they were going to restrict one card. I think that would be the one. That's it. Because giving yourself a a cost reducing effect when you're playing Spheres in your deck, which are already good, is it's pretty busted. You just get to break the symmetry even more. And um, it really feels like you're doing something that's not fair when you have that interaction set up on the board. Right. Um, you got a little bit more time. I wanted to. Oh, I got, I got a, a ton. I'm, I'm free all yeah. night. <laughs> Great. Because uh, I wanted to ask a little bit just more like sort of personal side stuff. Like what's it like to play at this at such a high level for three straight days and so many rounds and you know, with so much on the line. I mean, you talk a little bit about how you sort of felt while you were going through it, your, how you felt on the on the plane ride home. Like, you know, what's sort sure. of the emotional uh, component of playing, uh, of doing a back-to-back -to -back top eight like this? So I'll tell you um, that I'm actually currently writing an article and I was going to submit it to a few different websites, but it was, the article was going to be basically about the question that you just asked me. Um, and what I, what I can say is that I felt really, really confident going into the tournament for, for two reasons. One is because I knew I just had the best deck in the room um, or something very close to it, right? I knew Shops mm -hmm. was the best deck. Yeah. And the other thing is that uh, it was the first Magic tournament I ever really seriously prepared for. Um, and when I mean prepared, I mean worked on my exact 75 and played a whole bunch of games and not just played games, but like after I lost, I would go back and I would watch the replay and try and make myself better and, and figure out a different line I could have took and know, like, get better at deck recognition where it's like half a turn earlier. Oh, he's on this build of Paradoxical Storm instead of this one, which means that this play is a little bit better. So I felt really, really confident going in. Um, and I had won a trial out on the West Coast uh, at this place, my local game store called Eudaimonia. Mm -hmm. um, so I was already going in with a buy and... Instead of doing the thing that I always did with Magic tournaments, which would be fly out on Friday night, crash the hotel at midnight, wake up and start playing Magic at like 8 a.m. the next day or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I flew out on Wednesday night um, and then I spent all day Thursday uh, adjusting to the time zone and 
uh, I actually found out from the tournament organizers that you could have up to two buys. And I was like, oh man, that's that would be incredible. So uh, I played in another trial and I five would the trial and won a second buy. And that was like a huge, huge confidence. Sick. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. great. <laughs> you 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 literally won more matches in that weekend than uh, than Zach and I have won since like March. <laughs> we should do some videos together. I'll, I'll uh, we'll we'll play some some leagues with chops or something like that, and yeah, I think that'd be fun. We'll get you guys, get you guys some wins. But yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I played a lot of Magic, so I played five matches on Thursday. I played not or eight matches on Friday, and then I played. 10 matches on Saturday for Legacy. So 10 plus 8 plus 5 is 23. And I only dropped two of them. So wow. I was I was doing well. Pretty good. <laughs> that, that was the best weekend of my life for sure. Yeah. But when you know when I was testing vintage, my results were similar to that. It was like 4-1 a league, 4-1 a league, 5-0 a league, 4-1 a league. You know, and when your win rate is that high, one of two things is true. Either you're playing like a truly busted deck or you're very, very good at magic. And I, I, I think I was really just playing a truly busted deck with, with vintage. Yeah. Um, I mean, but, I'm not going to say that you're not, you're not a great magic player because it takes, it takes a lot of, of, of smart plays to, to make it to that point too. But uh, similarly, I've, I've been at those stages. Uh, this is like going 20 years back when replenish was a deck. Uh, and I was on it slightly before yeah. all the people in my meta, and I just remember just being like, <laughs> "I'm just playing a deck that's so much better than everybody else's deck. Like this is, you know, I just get to continue winning because the cards are just better here, and it's an amazing feeling to know that you're like ahead of the curve on that end." For sure, I, I remember getting that feeling when I was playing Omni Tell and Legacy with oh, four yeah. and Dig Time. <laughs> yeah. It was just yeah, like, of course. Why, why would you ever choose to do anything else? You know. It was. It really was that busted compared to what what else was going on. But uh, going back to your question earlier, um, my vintage uh, day was really tough. I lost a lot of die rolls, which is not good for the vintage deck. But um, I knew my I knew my role in every matchup, and I stuck to the game plan. Um, and it, you know, I got rewarded for it. And I finally got a good matchup in the tenth round, and. I was like, this is great. My opponent went like, buy you Deathrite Shaman, go. And I was like, all right, I think this is it. I think I'm going to top eight. And um, <laughs> that game, he went like recall, snap, recall, and then played time walk. And I just, I got buried in cards. Oh my God. I was like, I was like, this, this, not like this, not yeah. like this. Yeah, I, play, I played like seven, like really good matches of magic all day. And I got to that game and, and I was like down one, down a game in round 10. And then I just, um, game two, I, I drew my opening seven and I looked at it and I recognized it as one of the trap hands in, in shops. Um, there's a lot of those and I mulliganed to six and I got rewarded and I got, uh, a good hand and, uh, it was a foundry inspector into sphere hand and it was good enough to beat him. And then game three, uh, I was on the draw and I kept my seven and it was good. And then I drew Soul Ring, and it was completely busted. <laughs> so yeah, it I was, mean, yeah, of course. Yeah, it was, you know, <laughs> it was like, card. yeah, it was uh, shops into Foundry Inspector into Soul Ring into Second and Foundry Inspector into Sphere. Oh God, free spheres! Yeah, it was three spheres. <laughs> so, um, 
yeah, there was this really, really critical turn where game two, um, I had to beat a uh, nature's claim. Now, he nature claimed my precursor golem, so I, I gained 12. Um, but I saw that game two as one of his hate cards. And game three, I ended up winning because uh, I wasted him off of green, and Phyrexian Revoker has Mox Emerald. So he didn't have a green source. And at the end of the game, he showed me nature's claim in his hand, which I think uh, would have gotten back into, gotten him back into the game. So, yeah. The, th- the thing, though, in that, this, in that sort of matchup, this is the Deathrite Shaman deck, right? Like, yeah. I mean, having Nature's Claim a Priest Cursed Golem must be so miserable. Like, you just give the shops player so many more turns because uh, you're just chipping away, right? With your deck, you're right. not going to win in one turn, and then they can use more Ancient Tombs and everything. Like, I mean, that's, uh, that's I'm just I'm just saying that's an interesting, you know, you're like a gain 12, and like we talk about how life gain is overrated, underrated sometimes in Magic, but boy, that many extra turns for a deck like yours that's pulling off the top, you know? Mm-hmm. It was, um, it was, it was, it was definitely a critical turn um, in the entire match where he had to nature's claim it. But yeah. that's, you know, I think he, I think he had to, or else he would have lost the game just because I had, I had nine power in play. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, right. you have to do it, but yeah, it's funny. I, I like what you said about confidence and preparation and going out early. I mean, uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I've been there. Where I'm trying to squeeze my magic trip in uh, or my tournament trip in, you know, and it's like I sort of know I'm second guessing myself or I'm coming in late. Um, and I think that you having you talk about this double top eight and just saying like, this isn't like I just rolled out of bed and did it. I, I practiced, you know, all these games. I came in two days early, you know, cross country trip. for you, Right. So, yeah, that's yeah. the story we want to hear is like, I prepared for this and did well. Like I, I, you know, my last, uh, decent win was, uh, was it, uh, in fact, uh, in, in a legacy at a uh, bearded dragon. And I, I pulled away with a mana drain and it's because I slept nice. at my ride's house. Uh, the, the night before, I was like, I'm just going to sleep here, we're going to go early, you know, we're going to have breakfast, and then we're going to go to this tournament, and it was like, a, a world of difference to, to be well-rested and uh, well-practiced for your tournament, because we obviously practiced for a good portion of the night as well, and then just like, had a nap, went to sleep, you know, woke up, rested, and, and made it to the tournament, and I think that that, that often contributes to uh, more wins overall, is, is just getting a good night's rest. Oh, yeah. And there's another big secret that I was going to sort of try and naturally work into the conversation as well, but this, that's a pretty good segue. Um, in the course of testing on Magic on, Online a whole bunch, um, towards the beginning, I would just hop on whenever I had a little bit of time, right? Got home from work, I have time for a match, or I have time for two matches, and still a little bit stressed from work or whatever, and um, I would just hop on and um, a little bit distracted, not playing with headphones on, that sort of thing, and... I would sort of find myself making play mistakes or not focusing on the correct thing. And I found out for me that there were a couple really, really big things that I did in terms of my testing and the way that I actually conducted my life that set me up to do well when I was playing on Magic Online. And those things were the following. The the first is that um, if I was not well hydrated, I would not play Magic as well. And I know that sounds kind of funny, but if you go to a Magic tournament at the end of a day, like at the end of a long day where people just played like 11 rounds of Legacy or whatever it was, everybody says they have a headache or they're really tired or um, they're not feeling well, all that sort of stuff. And the reason why is probably because they're dehydrated. And 
people will just do things like drink coffee all day or Red Bull or those sorts of things. But Mm -hmm. I found that drinking water all day really helped me stay sharp. And at the end of every single day that I was playing at, I didn't feel that way. So definitely a big nod to water. The brain Um, needs water. That's for sure. Yeah, man. And I, I, I really can't recommend it strongly enough. Like one of the things that, I was telling someone about, they're like, oh, well, I don't want to have to go to the bathroom too much. It's just like, call a judge, go to the bathroom, yeah, come back, yeah, you get yeah, a time fine. extension for it. You know what I mean? <laughs> you can even use that to your advantage where like, I think Brad Nelson does this. Like when he needs to like use the restroom or something like that, he'll do it at a time where he needs to think about how he's going to sideboard or um, it's a really intense spot in the match and he thinks to needs to think about uh, like a couple turns in advance and that sort of thing. So I, I didn't end up doing that um, all weekend, but it was an option, right? Yeah. yeah. So drinking a, a ton of water was, was one thing. And the other thing for me was, uh, taking every single match that I played, like I was playing at a tournament weekend, um, and putting myself in the mindset that I'm currently six and oh at eternal weekend playing vintage. And if I win my next two or my next three, then I'm going to top eight, you know, putting myself in that mindset. Yeah in treating every single match that I played with that level of intensity. And it, it proved to work really well for me. So like I would need to, instead of just playing one or two games or matches when I got home from work, I would block off time. I would like move my gym nights around so I can play uh, like, a, like an entire league in one night or set up my Saturday so I would go and play the Vintage Challenge or something like that. And yeah, those were really big boons for me and if they work for me i think they might work for other people too and for sure, i want to get yeah i want to see everybody that i play magic with get better because if you raise the floor that means the entire community moves up and i think that would be great because there's not that much high level vintage going on all over the place uh not even just vintage vintage and legacy like I want to see everybody get better at the game because it makes me better, and I think it makes it better as a spectator sport. Um, so it's much I, more I fun to watch to to play uh, a good a good match. It's never fun when you watch your opponent uh, make a bonehead error that you know he shouldn't have made, and then you have to like awkwardly be like, "Oh man, you're you're tired, huh?" You know, it's yeah, never fun. I, I try to never um, uh, sort of point out when my opponent makes a mistake, but. If if I notice that um, someone, or if like someone gives context clues that they would be open to like advice after the match, I I love talking about the match that we played immediately afterwards, um, just because like it's super fresh right then, and when when you talk about it, it really uh, it can make people better, right? Yeah, for sure. Like getting that really immediate feedback, saying like, hey, when you like brainstormed at the end of your turn. Um, and then drew a card. I knew that that meant your hand was really strong, so I didn't force a will your next play, right? And I think giving that feedback to people is um, really important because it makes them better. And I want people to give me that feedback too. Well, I think what you said about just like you know, eternal magic, especially like you're we're only going to get so many chances to play it at a very high level, and uh, you know. You you want you want to have this experience be as rewarding and as and as fulfilling in the gameplay for everybody as possible, 
And uh, if more, you know, if we all prepare like you did for this, I'm just I'm so happy for you that it paid off like that. You know, it's just yeah. like really amazing if you think about it. Well, um, thank you. It felt really good to to work super hard at something and to have the results uh, that I wanted come out for it. Um, it it felt really rewarding. And um, just as a comment in general, the community of people at Eternal Weekend is absolutely second to none. Um, I played, I think we said 23 matches of Magic that, or actually it's 25 with the with the two top eights on on Sunday. I played 25 matches of Magic, which is a lot of Magic, yeah. and every single one of my opponents, and I mean 100%, was an absolutely pleasant person to play against. And I didn't see, I did not personally witness any toxicity. Which is incredible for, yeah, a, I for mean, a competitive magic event. That's actually something I was going to touch on because you're you're a great ambassador. Uh, just just speaking to you here, you can tell you're a great ambassador for for the community just a, as a whole. And that's the feeling that I generally get whenever I go to these events. It's it's more of a, it's it's almost not even like you're going to a tournament. You're going to a hangout where we're all where everyone's also playing magic and people are serious about the game, but they're also just like really actually having a great time. Oh yeah, I I go to a blast every single Magic tournament I ha- I, I I go to, um, and I try to foster that sort of um, sense of enjoyment with with everybody around me. Just because fundamentally we're playing a game here, and if it if it ever loses that sense of fun, I, I don't think I would want to be a part of it. You know, and yeah. I just remember being like a kid when I I started playing when I was. 10 years old back when like invasion started or invasion came out. And I remember it, there being this like, like forgive the pun, but like truly a sense of magic about it where the game was just so deep and I enjoyed it so much that like, I want to make sure that I, I, I surround myself with people that uh, sort of feel the same way. And I think when you act in that way, people will sort of respond to it. And yeah. I've been pretty lucky because I think the people that feel that way about it um, are friends that I have. Yeah, I mean, um, Zach and I, like, we, you know, Zach's getting married in a couple of weeks and uh, I have a couple oh, congratulations. of kids Utah. <laughs> Thanks. So unfortunately, like, neither of us could really make it to Trill Weekend and we went to record our preview cast and all of a sudden we were both like, man, we're really missing out. Like, this sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? We missed the opportunity to be at Eternal Weekend, and so next year, definitely, like, I'm going to get it on my calendar and make sure I plan around it just like you did <laughs> because, yeah. um, you know, I, I think that, would, you know, the preparation and the re- the rewarding aspects of being a, it, that close to the Eternal community for that weekend uh, really seemed to, uh, you know, pay off, so... I often um, say I often say this offcast, but I don't I don't say it often enough. Is is one of the things about it's great about the community is is so Nate and I knew each other sort of uh, you know we we've we've gone to some tournaments together and stuff like that th- uh, you know through through the like New York Magic community and when he was going to move you know obviously uh, many of us were bummed but I was I was particularly bummed and uh, I had decided to start a podcast. I was like you know somebody just join this podcast with me please. And um, it, it's kind of cool because Nate has moved to to Utah, and it's like the one one way we get to hang out like weekly is like by doing by doing this podcast. But it's like indicative of the community that like people tend to stick together, um, even even when like life changes happen and stuff like that. It's like it, it, it's it's just kind of a nice uh, nice thing that like is a byproduct of a really fun game. 
Oh yeah. And first of all, I'm, I'm super happy that you guys still have that connection. Um, and I just wanted to say that I, I, first of all, like I can feel it between you guys. You seem like you're really comfortable with each other, which is great. Um, but I, I had a very similar experience as well. Um, my really good group of friends that I played magic with back in New York, um, we, you know, basically cubed every week in this guy's basement. No, it was a finished basement. So it was like totally, totally reasonable. <laughs> but I still talk to those guys every day. Um, we have a, a Facebook chat that's been going on for the last, I'm going to say six or seven years uh, in that time <laughs> yeah. frame. And it's, it's very, very active still. So as I was doing well in the tournament, they were giving me updates uh, and that sort of thing. And they were cheering me on. And even though they weren't physically in the same place as me, I, they got to experience it. With yeah. Me. And yeah. I wouldn't have wanted that any other way. I wish they could have been there, of course, but um, that, you know, my best friends for my entire life are people that I, I played magic with. The same. I mean, my best man and one of my groomsmen that uh, we've been playing magic for 23 years. Oh totally God. how I met those That's guys. incredible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, then just like, you know, I've talked about like moving out here and not knowing if I was ever going to play legacy again to like meeting some people who really wanted to build a community and doing what I could to help. And, you know, now, you know, we have these big tournaments, we see people, we talk about our jobs and our kids and, you know, stuff like that at our, at our weekly as well. So, um, that's great. Now where in New York are you from? You so I'm originally from, uh, Westchester, New York, which mm -hmm. is just North of New York city. Yep. Uh, yep. And then I went to school up in Rochester, New York, which is out West. Really? Yeah. It's in yeah. Western New York. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. I was born in Westchester actually, and then moved to Rochester, uh, no way. When, I was, when I was like seven. <laughs> what part I, of I, Westchester? Uh, Hartsdale. Okay. So my, I lived in Hartsdale. My brother is a firefighter in the Hartsdale Fire Department. Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah my aunt lives in White Plains still. My uh, oh, my yeah. um my family moved to Rochester in the late you know the early '90s, and then I went to school in Buffalo, and then I moved back to New York and lived there for a while after after college. But uh, it's funny that <laughs> Westchester to Rochester. Yeah, I can I can relate to that. I, I played Magic in Rochester. You know, um, I don't know if that would have been around the same time you were there for college. Um, but Rochester had a really strong scene in the late '90s. It was a pretty big, um, pretty big uh, sort of center for for Magic, and yeah. it's they still have. Uh, actually, I shouldn't say now because I haven't been there in a few years. But uh, I'm 26, uh, and I finished college in like the 2012-2013 timeframe, mm -hmm. and the Magic scene up there was really incredible. There was a group of very very good players, um, and sort of the the fire in which I was forged was this um, this game store in Syracuse, New York uh, called Jupiter Games. Mm -hmm. And they have, and I don't think they still run very big tournaments, but the quality of Eternal Magic being played there was unbelievably high. I mean, it was like really the epicenter for East Coast uh, legacy. And you know, surrounding yourself with really good magic players is the best way to get better. And when you went and played at Jupiter, you only played good magic players. That, you, that's yeah, it, very much like our old store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because, like, as I got more into competitive legacy and started meeting some people that, you know, you heard about through the grapevine, I was amazed how many of them were from Syracuse and yeah. down and, you know, into Binghamton and, uh, you know, into northern Pennsylvania. And, you know, obviously, I mean, the people around New York from living in New York, but a lot of people from the central New York area. So yeah, we're good. We're keeping it alive, right? Yeah. It's a um, super strong scene. Anything we want to close out with Zach or 
Um, I mean, yeah. I think we 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 hit all the spots there. We talked about uh, we talked about legacy. We talked about vintage. We we touched on the fact that Eric played two fun police decks. Um, <laughs> we got we got some uh, some opinions about uh, restrictions and bannings. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, we, on that topic, did you want to talk about restrictions and bannings in in legacy? I sure would. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nate's gonna Nate's gonna leave. Me and Eric are gonna finish this thing off. All right. Well, i i have I have a I have a, an interesting opinion in Legacy. Sure. Um, I don't think Legacy is broken enough right now for a real Eternal Magic. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was asked on the the top eight form for uh, 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 the, the, the legacy championships they said what should be banned in uh in a, in legacy right now and i said you should ban deathrite shaman and you should ban gristle brand because if you banned deathrite shaman then reanimator is just going to be like too actually too good for the yeah. format but i would i answered that question because they asked what should be banned not what should be unbanned i would love for them to see or i would love to see them unban like survival of the fittest or frantic search or some other really broken card um those cards haven't been around for a long time yeah and the answers to them have gotten so much better like so much better that i don't think they would be as good as people expect them to be we need and, a whole podcast on unbanning necropotence yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like come on like did you really necro- do a whole podcast on we, it? we did yes oh, yeah <laughs> The Reddit, the Reddit outrage was was real, but uh, I, I stand by that. I think that uh, Necropotence is, is a card that you probably wouldn't even play in in a combo deck, and it would probably end up in in Pox as like a, a way to a way to get card advantage. We also talked about uh, unbanning uh, uh, what's it, uh, Skull Clamp, uh, but that was that was quashed pretty much immediately when we realized, oh yeah, Elves is Elves is immediately going to be pretty good in in that scenario. Yeah, I think Elves would be pretty good, but. I don't think it, it would be as good as people expected it to be. Yeah, um, I'd be willing to see what happens for a couple of months. I mean, I, we didn't even mention like the card Earthcraft, which I just can't believe is banned. Oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> like I think I think Earthcraft is really busted in Elves. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, I no I think Earthcraft in Elves might be more busted than Skullclamp, and I, that might sound like an unpopular opinion, but or like potentially wrong. But Earthcraft is a really screwed up magic card. What about Mind Twist? I mean, that's Mind Twist is fine. You can unban it. Yeah, they should change. They reprinted it as like a as like an invocation. I was like, they're just gonna unban this stupid card. No one's gonna play it. Yeah, I mean, I want to see like really broken stuff though. Like my favorite, so my actual favorite magic card is Stifle, but like in the top three is definitely Mind's Desire. I just want like one tournament where I get to play with that card. I have I got a nice set of dark rituals I want to play. Like getting to two blue mana is not exactly easy. Let's let's do this, man. Yeah, like, I, I mean you can just play it as so. a one of in uh in, in vintage, man. You just have to switch decks. Yeah, the problem is you have to play a bad deck to do it. Yeah, um, I do. I, <laughs> I, I, oh, do you play do you play storm in vintage? Uh, I do. Well, I don't play storm actually. Uh, so I, I'll occasionally uh, bring that as a as a one of in in like vault as just like another way to like get get a key vault to like happen mm-hmm. okay yeah i um i have a lot of money invested in uh foils for storm and i still never play the deck yeah it's just 
with the printing of cards like Flusterstorm, it's really hard to play. And again, so many mental missteps right now that there's no way you could get me to play a Dark Ritual Storm deck. The Storm is is in a tough place in both in both formats right now because it's so hard to balance it's that they keep printing cards to answer it. <laughs> yeah, it's ironically, enough, right? I actually think Storm is pretty well pre- well positioned in uh, Legacy right now. Yeah, just because. Like, if you look at the counter magic that the Checkpile deck is playing and the Grixis deck is playing, you're really favored game one. They're, yeah, they're oh. not good enough. They, they don't have enough uh, counter magic, I think. And that's that's because they are playing Deathrite Shamans instead of, you know, Spell Pierces and uh, Spell Snares. Exactly. And Stifles, for that matter. So that's actually... Times. Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons why I really like Rug over, over the Grixis lists. But, um, you know, the, the Storm game plan of just usually killing you with tendrils game one and then having the backup plan for of goblins for game two is so strong just because if you go and look at a lot of the grixis lists they'll play like or check pile lists they'll play like one marsh casualties or something like that and that's not a good enough game plan to beat a deck that can make you know 12 to 12 to 16 goblins on turn one almost every game right so or maybe turn two so i i think brian cook is right in saying that you know, Tess is very, very well positioned right now, and he's had a, he's had a lot of success with the deck. Yeah, I, I, last I saw Brian at the Eternal Extravaganza, and he had a rough go of it. I mean, with Storm, it's just like because it's so um, I don't want to say fragile isn't what I mean. I mean, I know the deck is resilient, but relative, relatively so compared to you know like a very consistent um, good stuff type pile. Um, that's where I think Storm over a long tournament gets a little bit iffy. Now, the last time I played Storm, I played against four straight Grizzlebrand and or Merit Lage decks. So <laughs> my, 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 sour, my sourness might have just been like, well, I guess you just have a creature that can kill me on turn two on turn two. So <laughs> yeah. That's wrong. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, I think the problem with Storm is that over the, I don't know, something like an 11-round tournament like Eternal Weekend was, you, you're you going to run into a deck that's just like, Thalia, good luck, you know? Yeah. And those games, it's not like it, it's not like you're like 30% or 20% to win the, that game one or, or whatever. You know, it's very binary in the sense that if your opponent goes like Thalia on, on game one against Storm, you're pretty close to 0% to win that game, right? Yeah. And, with a lot of the other good stuff decks, even if it's a bad matchup, your your win percentage is going to be forty percent instead of zero, and the trade off for that is your win win rate goes to sixty percent in your good matchups. So, when when you have a more binary deck like that over a long tournament, you're going to pick up a loss just because of matchup. Yeah, can I share your story from last night? I was playing. Sure. Uh, I played black white pox last night. You know, trying to get just trying to do something a little different. I played against Storm round one. I won the first game because he had no permanence. And then uh, in game two, like, I'm on the draw, but I, I drew seven cards, and I was like, well, this hand has a Thalia. Like, I boarded out my Innocent Bloods and boarded in Thalias, you know, mm-hmm. for the Storm. And uh, he goes, and I'm like, all right, well, we'll see what happens. So uh, he hits me with a Duress, which doesn't take Thalia. And then, like, a total freaking Luxac, I just, like, rip a Chromox off the top and play a turn one Thalia. <laughs> then, like, Wasteland is Underground Sea, and he can't massacre it. Like, I was just, it was so cheesy. But, yeah, I mean, that's, Storm has those matchups, you know, where we, we've talked about on the cast a few times where it's, like, yeah, like, sometimes you play Storm and, and you play against a Chalice deck, and they just have, they, they win the die roll, have Chalice in game one, right? 
and then you maybe beat them game two and then in game three they win the day they're on the play again with you know and they know what they're looking for and they just find it you know it's just not there's not like a lot to do there really you know yeah there's with storm there's some non-games and if if you're showing up to a long magic tournament and your deck is prone to having non-games like that it's I think you're bound to lose some, which yeah, yeah. I always favor decks where, you know, you have game against everything. But I don't you know, like I'm playing Shops and Vintage, right? I basically never win game one against Dredge. So it's, that's yeah. how it goes. That's talk, magic, about, though, right? talk about lands that are busted to have two of them play. I was watching a Vintage stream earlier today and the opponent had two bizarres. Like, <laughs> like he has two bizarres against like the guys. Like, I got a strip mine. All right. Yeah. Nice bizarre. I just played a second bizarre. Like, yeah. Oh yeah, that's not restricted or legendary. <laughs> it, th- yeah, that's a it's a messed up card. Like, I, I think one of the quote unquote solutions to the format, and I don't think there's even like a a problem that needs to be solved right now. But if you restrict bizarre, people have real sideboards again, and yeah. that would definitely open up uh, how you can approach building your deck to beat shops, right? Because you know what's a good card against shops. Lightning Bolt's a pretty good card against workshops, and not many people play it. So you might yeah. not want Lightning Bolt against like the blue control decks, but it would certainly open up space for you to play cards like that so you have a little bit more game against the creature matchups as well. Um, I, I would like to see what that format looks like. You know, yeah. I had I had mentioned uh, uh, a couple weeks ago when we were talking about like possible solutions for, for Vintage, and one of the one of the um, solutions I had, which is, it, it, I I work as a game designer by by trade. Um, oh, cool. So you know, uh, trying to take different approaches to the the banned and restricted list was something we were talking about. And one of them was just Narada on shops and bizarre that that make them legendary. Uh, I think that matters um, a little bit, but shops is so good that you can draw one of them and oh, yeah. play some jewelry <laughs> and just ancient tomb and. That's fine. You'll be fine. Like, yeah. I, uh, yeah. You, you'll be fine. All right. So you said you're a game designer, right? I have a, I have an interesting game design question for you and Please. you don't have to answer right, right away, but, uh, yeah, I'm putting you on the spot here, right? Okay. So let's say for a second that in limited magic. Okay. So this is just when you're playing draft and or sealed, mm-hmm. you get to start with a single basic land of your choice in the command zone. How do you think that, your deck building and magic gameplay changes as a result. So I'm assuming that you can bring this into to play uh, just like it was in your hand, but you would, you yeah. wouldn't. Okay. So exactly. So you get to play it as your land for the turn. Right. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, how does that change things? Well, yeah, that's, I love, that's I love f- people asking this question because it really, really, uh, it forces them to think about something that they've never thought about before. And for sure. It's yeah, like I've never... the deck, the deck building process of like putting lands in a, in a, in a limited deck is like, it's either 16, 17 or 18 and it's probably 17. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think this really changes things and like, does aggro get better and sealed or does control get better? Cause it's way more likely to hit its first four land drops, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, yeah I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. That's Not, doesn't have to be right now, but just, just in general. That's that's one I, I have to think on. I mean, we talk about uh, the the mana problem a lot in it, at work about like we have we we have like I think six magic players that work for us because magic players are very good at at uh, finding holes in design at the very least if not if not designing themselves. 
Um, and, and so one of the main things I talk with my boss a lot is like magic's main problem is the, is the mana screw, uh, situation. Yeah. And that obviously mitigates that. Um, and, and, you know, so, so Hearthstone has sort of found a way around the mana screw problem. Um, and the coin is obviously an interesting thing. And what you're looking at here is basically a coin. Um, mm -hmm. you don't jump ahead, but you're guaranteed that land at the very least. So you still get that constant flow that um get, brings you closer to uh hitting the uh hitting your your one your twos threes and fours um i would say what it does is it makes uh for sure makes uh two drops stronger uh draft picks because you're always guaranteed to hit that second land drop um no matter what your hand looks like um and i do i do think that aggro decks get better because you can keep much more sketch hands um mm -hmm. I mean, that's how I feel about Legacy, is, like, I could keep a one-lander if I have a Brainstorm, like, right? So, like, knowing knowing that you have access to a second land um, generally means you can keep sketchier hands. Um, so, I think I think aggro gets better, but that's, th th that's fine if you decide to build a format that um, has that in mind. You know, you can, you yeah. can certainly do that. You can build a, a draft format that has that in mind, it, that... Uh, aggro is going to be strong here. Do we want people to actually play with the other cards? If we do, we have to dumb down aggro in some way or make or make control stronger uh, during the during the design process. For sure, and I, I I agree with you know like everything you just said. But there's there's even other implications involved, right? So one of the most difficult parts with uh, playing like limited is splashing for a third color. Oh yeah, I was what thinking you, about that. What, yeah, what if you just made your your basic land in the command zone your splash color yeah like how like that's pretty cool because it really opens up your options and i know i don't let me let me preface this i have not opened up packs of magic cards and drafted them in like five years it's just <laughs> it's just not what i do but i've heard a lot of other people talk about the way that the last few draft formats have gone mm. um where there's not a ton of fixing and the decks are rather linear where it's like you draft the black white deck, which has these cards in it, or you draft the blue green deck, which has these cards in it. I just thought it would be really cool to make fixing always available. Um, like for everybody. Right. Yeah. And that means that if you open up like, okay, you can build this like blue green merfolk deck from Ixalan, but Oh, I opened this super awesome, like red rare and it interacts with the blue green deck in this interesting way, which you don't normally get to see. Yeah. Um, it, well, there's a card to, that gives two creatures plus two plus zero. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a pretty sick card in your in your Merfolk deck. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So, stronger decks for everyone, man. I actually had the situation over the weekend. Uh, I played in a Pro Tour qualifier over the weekend. I did. Uh, I did okay. I went three and three. Um, mm -hmm. and I was two and one at one point. Um, but I had to build a weird deck. So I I looked at my pool and I had an okay, almost all white deck with some red splashes, basically. But I opened a Regisaur Alpha. Uh, if you're not aware of that card, it's a five mana four four that oh. makes a uh, three three as well. Um, I, I am aware of that card yeah. because I got beat by it in Legacy this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good Magic card to splash into your uh, to splash into your Legacy deck, apparently. But um, yeah, so I, I was like, this is a bomb. This is a pretty good bomb rare in, in an aggressive deck. Hitting that on turn five is really good. And so I looked at my deck and I really didn't want to take anything out of my deck. To make this work, and I wanted to play 16 lands, so I ended up playing 16 lands, and my 23rd land, or sorry, my uh, my 17th land was actually a uh, a mana rock that you name a creature type, 
and then it produces any mana for that creature. So I ended up using it a lot to bring out Regisaur Alpha for green mana. And then I played like a, I had a, an, an artifact that made different colored mana too. Uh, but the main way to get that out was playing that. I played one forest and this like mana rock. And had I had the option of not putting that forest in my deck, I would have. Uh, I would have had it in the command zone for sure. This is the very first thing I thought of when you, when you said that actually. That's really interesting. I I think Magic has made, uh, or I should say Wizards of the Coast, has made a, uh, a couple really good changes in the last few years in terms of actual gameplay. Like, the the scry rule after oh, yeah. Mulliganing was just, whoever made that decision should be not given a promotion. Let them keep, have them do the same job, just give them more money so they do stuff like that more often. Like, that was that was the best decision Magic has made in such a long time. Since the Paris this, Mulligan. Yeah. Well, especially right. yeah, especially in Legacy and Vintage, where your card quality, individual card quality, is so high. Um, I think we 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 get way more benefit out of it, um, just because, you know, the chances if you have to bottom a card, the chances that it's impact the next card is impactful are a little higher because just of the raw card quality that you get. It's, right? Oh yeah. It's so much more consistent and limited though because fetch lands exist. Um, so anything past, uh, standard, sometimes that scry means nothing. Right. That's true. Yeah. Well, you know what a really good feeling is when you mulligan to six, uh, and then you play a turn, turn one Delver and you know, it's going to flip. Oh like, yes. <laughs> I know that feeling all too well. <laughs> that's a, that's a good feeling. That, it almost that really makes up for losing a card. For the mulligan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a great one. Um, Yeah. All right, so I think that pretty much does it. Uh, Nate, any other questions? No, I just want to say again, thanks, Eric, for coming on and and being so thoughtful on everything. Uh, we'd love to have you back, so we'll we'll keep the communication open. Yeah, I'd uh, I'd love to come back. Thanks for having me on. I I really enjoyed it, and um, I think in the next few months we're going to see some changes in vintage. So I'm definitely going to keep my ear to the ground on the metal game meta game, and I'll be playing uh, some some non shops decks. I'm sure. So I'll, I'll have more stuff to report. Awesome. The metal game. That's like a shops joke. I feel like <laughs> <laughs> it was and a slip really, of the tongue, but it worked pretty well. Really, congratulations again. I mean, what a remarkable achievement. So uh, you know, you, you've you've always got that. I mean, I've been dining out on my one big top eight for like three years now. So <laughs> I'm eight. sure I'm sure I'll still be talking about this in three years because I don't have I won't have much else going on. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been a pleasure having you, man. Thanks so much. All right. Have a good one, guys. Good night, everyone. Where does he get those wonderful toys?